regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi, listeners. This is Datacast, where I hold long-form and in-depth conversations with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Gary Hackmother, the CEO of Archeon Labs, the only cloud-native zero-code data mobility platform that allows enterprise to view high-performance, real-time data pipelines in seconds. Gary brings more than 20 years of tech industry leadership experience and has generated nearly $8 billion in enterprise value through two IPOs and four M&A exits. He holds an MBA from the Marshall School of Business at University of Southern California, where he was named Chef Fellow as well as a bachelor degree in business administration from Arizona State University. So Gary, it's my pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, James. Perfect. I want to start our conversation with some brief coverage of your educational background. So as we just mentioned a little bit, you um, studied business at Arizona State, and then later you got an MBA in finance at USC. So yeah, how was your overall academic experience at this institution? Yeah. So I think, look, my academic experience, kind of this formative piece of what propelled me forward in my career, I think. So Arizona was great for a a combination of things. So number one, it's a sort of school that if you really apply yourself and work hard at it, you wind up with a lot of depth and a lot of very interesting people. Also did a nice job in terms of rounding out kind of the social aspects of what I think is a hallmark of just about anybody moving into a leadership role being uh, successful, right? So that was a good experience. I spent a couple of years between undergraduate and graduate school. And the thing on graduate school is like, and my counsel would be for anybody who's approaching that sort of decision, is to really do it in a focused sort of way. I remember a lot of my grad school classmates were kind of on a voyage of discovery, right? Which is great. But what wound up happening is those of us that were very mercenary or focused on a specific outcome that we wanted out of that program wound up doing some pretty amazing things really fairly shortly after coming out of it. So I'd basically say this, the experience on both sides was great. My counsel would be is if anybody's looking at doing the grad school thing, try to hone in a little bit on what you exactly want out of the program and and what your goal is after it, and then do everything in the program to basically apply towards those goals. And then the outcomes become great. Mm-hmm. When when you sing your MBA, did you know intuitively like what industry or sector yeah. you want to join afterwards? Yes. So the crazy thing is, coming out of undergraduates, I actually worked in the consumer products industry, right? So I was doing a combination of sales and marketing sorts of things in consumer products, which was interestingly enough, but it wasn't enough to get me cognitively stimulated enough. And what I found I was always doing is I was always gravitating towards back in the day, there was all these new technical innovation sort of projects that were coming on. And I would always wind up, you know, volunteering for it. And everybody would be like, what the hell is a sales guy doing volunteering for this technical integration sort of stuff? Right. And so for me, the light bulb went off at that point that I'm like, yeah, you know, straight up consumer product marketing and sales wasn't the thing that was going to make me most interested. So I focused in very much when I applied for grad school. 
I basically was looking at programs that could help me move forward in the direction that I wanted to go. Specifically at that time, it was tech or telecom, right? Telecom was a big thing back then, not so much today. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I looked for. I managed to land fellowship within the MBA program. Mm-hmm. And then basically like everything I did was like, let's marry classes to what my goal is. Let's marry internship to what my goal is. Let's go network, network, network to the people who could be influential. And so out of that, what wound up happening was it was super easy to jump into one of those networking sort of conversations that I had had with, you know, people who were at, well, it was GTE then it turned into Verizon very shortly after I got there. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that really was the essence of it is basically marry everything that you possibly can towards that goal. And, you know, then it actually becomes kind of easy. Right. So. Yeah. Perfect. So talking about that first job out into MBA program. So yeah. You were at Verizon where you led a business and development team in the yeah. enterprise offerings group. Yeah. What was the most valuable lesson that you learned from that job? Wow, the lessons on that first job were enormous, right? And it really, a couple things, right? So I came out of grad school with a curious combination of a guy who could sell things and who was also deeply analytical and had invested a lot of time in coming up to speed on technology. So I had kind of this, you know, three-legged stool, if you want to call it that. And what that allowed me to do was go and talk to our partner organizations, you know, people like Boeing and Aerospace Corporation, a lot of these other very large companies that were buying things from Verizon on the enterprise side, right? Build business plans and business models that we could jointly go to market with so they could bring their suppliers in and other things like that. And then what I would have to do is I would have to go to my company leadership at the Verizon regional sort of offices and get them to essentially fund the infrastructure builds for doing this. Right. And so the interesting lesson and the most valuable thing that came out of that was this ability to kind of merge and marry together the needs of my customers and my partners, right, which had very different needs and expectations than the needs and expectations of the executives who controlled the purse strings of the company itself. So the most important lesson there was this attenuation process and figuring out what do these guys want? What are they going to want? How do I make this case one that appeals to everybody in the timelines that they need it all done in as well, right? So that was probably the most important lesson. And another way to package that is the ability to understand requirements and then kind of work through the influencing process, how you can get people who might otherwise say, hey, you know, it's it's too expensive or it doesn't pay back fast enough or other things like that to accept that, okay, maybe in this case, it might not look like everything that I've seen in the past, but it gets me to where we need to be long-term, right? And so those were very, you know, it's the influencing skills and that sort of stuff that were very instrumental in, in what comes later. I see. So like marrying the technical side with the business side, reaching the needs as well as understanding the requirement. Yeah. In this sense, it wasn't so much negotiating, but it was presenting a case that would be acceptable that maybe didn't fit what they normally did. Because keep in mind, before 1996, right, the entire telecom industry was this regulated beast that nobody did anything outside of the box, right? And then here I come along, you know, like a year later with a group of people and we're like doing all these wild and crazy things that all these executives who were probably close to retiring basically had never seen before and needed to wrap their heads around, right? So that was a big chunk of what we did is how do you take people who don't really understand what you're asking them to do and get them excited to do what you want them to do, right? Yeah, definitely interesting for me as a young person to get to hear some of the stories back in the 90s, you know, of how <laughs> technology changed a lot. So after like three years at Verizon, you spent two years as the director of corporate development at Knockpoint Communication, where you mm-hmm. have drive is IPO. What challenges did you recall about bringing the company public? 
Oh, wow. How long is this conversation going to be? So no, seriously, the experience at North Point was off the charts amazing on so many different levels, right? But the things that were the biggest challenge in bringing the company public was a couple, right? So number one, we had grown enormously over the course of my time there. So keep in mind, when I joined there, I was like employee number not quite 200. When we went through this IPO, which was just about a year later, we were 1,800, right? So our revenues had gone up like a hundredfold in that period of time, right? And so the interesting thing is when you wind up going public, you need to present yourself as being a little bit more buttoned up than a couple of guys in the you know garage trying to build some stuff and hacking things together and all that. The challenge is when you go from being not quite 200 to just a bit over 1800 in a one-year period of time, it's incredibly difficult to have the processes and capabilities and, and other things that make you look like an adult firm. It's incredibly difficult to put those things into place and have them execute. So a lot of the challenges that we wound up having in taking the company public was basically going off and putting together the, the programs, the controls, the other things that would give us the ability to project as kind of an adult company, firstly. Secondly, because our revenue was still growing so much and a lot of the use cases and the things that our customers and partners were doing were kind of still being formulated, right? It became kind of difficult to give projections as to what we would do and how to evaluate us, right? One of the biggest challenges we had was that we had deployed a very large amount of capital, you know, to basically build this network out, right? But the amount of usage of that was really not quite substantial yet, right? We were only at the very beginning stages of the utilization of it, right? So we had to go and, and help the Wall Street analysts come up with a way to value us and predict what we would be in the future, Right. And so that actually became one of the biggest challenges is talking about our valuation metric that they should use. We dawned upon this thing called a data population past. So how many people in a population could we serve with the infrastructure and capital that we'd already deployed? And they could use that then of saying, oh, okay, so if they just keep doing this, right, you know, here's how big the pie could get, right? And so that became the biggest challenge of getting them to understand that piece of it and anchor on it. And it worked well, right? Because it wound up being like about $6 billion IPO, right? So clearly the message got through, but it was certainly a lot of fun running around and convincing people to adopt a new valuation metric. Perfect. Yeah. So it sounds like try to change the culture of the firm a little bit to become more formal and yeah, about valuation metrics working with uh, Wall Street analysts. Another note, you know, while doing the research about this for years, I believe that, you know, this is during the dot-com yeah. uh, era. I'm curious, how does that affect your IPO experience? At all? Well, yeah, so it was the dot-com era, but we were not a dot-com, right? So there was a lot of people going public that had like $2 in revenue, right? We had like 100 million, right? So like it was a very different beast from that perspective. But, you know, the, my perspective, it was very interesting because money was really cheap back then. It was cheap back a couple of months ago here too. It's starting to get a little bit more expensive now. But so a lot of things were getting funded that probably shouldn't wind up getting funded. And for us, the interesting thing is actually it created a competitive dynamic that didn't necessarily need to exist, right? Because there were other companies that were smaller and getting funded after we got started, right? That candidly, if the market, if the uh, capital environment would have been a little bit tighter, right? They probably never would have gotten that funding or they never would have gotten as much funding, right? So it created this interesting dynamic for us, that was a little something to have to deal with that, that we wouldn't normally have had to deal with, right? And so, you know, my perspective on that going forward, though, is, you know, when you get into these, and every economic cycle has a boom period and a bust period. And when you get in the boom period, you're going to get into that same sort of dynamic. 
So if you're running a company or if you're selling, you know, a certain line of business or whatever else, you have to kind of be mindful of the other people who are out there taking advantage of that and figure out, are they enduring or are they stable sort of companies or is there a competitive disadvantage that we can pony up or talk about to our customers so that they can understand the risks they're taking with this one company versus the things that we're offering them, right? Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing your insights on that. For the next phase of your career, you have a CEO role at Vinfolio. According to my research, Vinfolio was an innovator in the white industry. What did you learn by working in a completely different industry then? Yeah. So, James, the fun part about it, so the dot-com boom, all this sort of stuff, great, heady sort of days. But at the end of it, right, we had the dot-com bust, right? And so, like, during that period of time, you know, my view was like, hey, look, let's go off and do, you know, something that's a little closer to lifestyle. So I'm a bit of a foodie, you know, at the time, you know, before kids, have, you know, was, was a little bit more into wine than perhaps I am today. Right. And so the thought was, let me go partner up with a buddy who was trying to put together a seller management sort of service. And let's go see what kind of fun we can have in a thing that was completely untech related. Now, here's the thing that I learned about the whole thing, right? So if you put two tech guys into any sort of company, it's going to turn into a tech company pretty fast, right? And so the interesting thing is we, we spent probably about three or four months trying to sell subscription services to high-end wine collectors to basically catalog, capture, and manage their wine sellers, which was great, right? It was an interesting business. But the thing we found out pretty fast is some of these guys are like billionaires and hedge fund managers and stuff like that. They'd be incredibly cheap on anything except for buying and selling of wine itself, right? I remember one conversation, literally having an argument with a guy who owned half of Pennsylvania about why this $2 charge happened to show up on his bill for this month, right? Mm -hmm. So they're banging our heads against the wall, what we realized very quickly was that we actually have this treasure trove of data that we're sitting on because we've cataloged all their sellers and we've figured out what are they buying and what are they selling and what do they care about and all of this sort of stuff, right? And so very quickly, what we were able to do was figure out that we could create this facilitated exchange business and offer very personal and interactive sorts of prompts to people who are either looking to buy or looking to sell. Right. And so from there, that turned into a really successful exchange business, like I said before. But the epiphany there was, and this, by the way, has guided me ever since, right? Any industry this day is dependent on data in order to be successful. Now, we could have been that company that banged our head against, you know, the rock wall of cheap billionaires for a couple more years, right? Or we could have taken advantage of the data as we did and morph into something that was slightly different, but also very successful. And so that was the main experience here, which is that, you know, data is really something that will drive an outcome almost anywhere you wind up going. Yeah, I see. And that probably like triggered your interest in working in within the data space later on in your career. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's right. You know, even in earlier days, like, you know, we were, I was always involved in data projects or other things where you're like using data to have realizations. That was like the first time to really understand it. Like, oh, wow, the entire business, actually, actually, it's not a wine business. It's a data business, right? So. Perfect. You spent about two years at Vinfolio and after you got acquired, you uh, spent the next four years in chief financial officer roles to start up. One is called No Now and the other one is called Zora. Yeah. What were some of your core responsibility as a CFO in these places? Yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty vanilla CFO sort of roles with a big caveat, right? So, you know, the CFO role basically is kind of the steward of the economics. And the reason I wound up in CFO roles to begin with was 
kind of going back to what I described earlier, which is like a highly analytical person, you know, in the corporate development experience, like I had at North Point, you know, we're basically banging out spreadsheets in the middle of the night, like super fast figuring out like, hey, what's this thing worth and all that sort of stuff. So that gave me like this really crisp understanding of how corporate ep- economics work. And so as, you know, we moved off of the Vinfolio thing, and as I started to talk to other people in my network about what I'd want to do next, you know, that surface is something that like they saw an opportunity for me to really drive at, right? So the roles are, you know, a couple things. When you're a CFO in a startup sort of thing, it's really more than what you are if you're a CFO in, let's say, a public company, right? Public company CFO is pretty narrow. Um, generally, in the CFO startup world, it's the you get to own everything other than engineering, sales, and marketing, sometimes customer success, depending on how things are defined, right? So job responsibilities in that role, obviously, you know, accounting, finance, almost every time it was, you know, HR sort of things, facilities sort of things. You know, in the Zora time, there was a period of time where like almost every function in the company reported to me for a period of time, like we had an engineering leader leave, right? They're like, hey, you go run engineering. I'm like, wow, I don't even know how that works. But it was a don't break anything sort of role. You know, there was a period of time where we had a sales leader transition, right? And so those were kind of interesting things to do. So all of the CFO roles were kind of like that. The caveat that was different than I think a lot of the CFOs that participate or that do that role in startup space was was also super heavily involved in the outbound part of the fundraising process. So a lot of times in startups, it's the CEO or CEO and another technical founder or whatever um, that go off and do it for whatever. And I think this goes back to that first question you asked about like being able to influence people and, and get them motivated to give you money. Like I have this ability to kind of paint the story and help people understand why they would want to put money into this. Right. And so I ran around and raised a bunch of different rounds in the different companies that you'd mentioned over there. The second thing that was kind of curious also is that, especially in the Zora days, this was a product that was generally sold to a CFO, right? And so what wound up happening a lot of times is they would put me on sales calls because, you know, the CFO on the other end would be like, oh, here's this, you know, sales guy. I'm not going to listen to what this guy, oh, they're bringing a CFO. Okay, we can actually talk about my problems. And, you know, maybe this guy has something that's non-salesy sort of stuff. And so that actually turned into a pretty effective sales tactic. And I certainly enjoyed the heck out of it because hopefully you can tell from this, I love getting in front of people and talking about stuff and, you know, all of that. So it was really a great experience from that perspective. That's really, really cool. The distinction of like CFO in a big fund versus CFO in startup who like got the opportunity to expand the scope and then trying out like yeah. function. And James, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I've spent pretty much the entirety of my career in startups is because it's, you know, they're stressful, but they're fun, right? They're challenging, but that's a good thing if you're kind of an adrenaline junkie and you want to learn new things, right? You know, I can't imagine a world where I would sit and do the exact same thing every single day, right? And so that for me has always been the fun of doing these startup sorts of things. And it certainly manifests itself in startup CFO and some of the other roles that I've had. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was thinking about asking this question later on why we talk about Akion Lab, but given the fact that you just mentioned that you have a lot with the fundraising process with these different startups that you serve as a CFO, this is sort of like a I guess advice seeking question, but like for like startup founders who try to seek capital for their company, what yeah. fund advice would you give for them to choose the right investors for the startup? Oh, for choosing the right investors? Oh, boy, the list of there is quite long. So I think, look, it's going to be very specific to the sort of technology that they're selling. So here's my preference, right? Early on, when, when I say early, this is probably series B and before, 
right? Mm -hmm. You want an investor who knows the technology, right? That's hands down. You kind of don't want somebody who is peripheral to it. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of good and smart money out there, but you want people to kind of understand the technology because those ones can be very helpful in getting you over the things that you want to do. If you get into somebody who is a little bit more of a generalist, you wind up in a world where the advice they give you doesn't really fit the problem because they don't understand the problem deeply enough. And it's an interesting position. If you're in a leadership role, if you're a CEO or a founder or whatever else in these sorts of things, when you're building these companies, it can be very confusing, especially if you've never done it the first time, because you just don't know, right? You're like, I could go here or I could go here. I don't know, you know, like I have little bits of data in either of these sorts of things, but I don't have a, a you know firm sense of this is the direction I have to go. So then you look around, especially in the CEO role, right? You look around to those people around your board and the people who advise you to figure out, should I go this direction or should I go that direction? If you have people who are generalists, they may pattern match on things that they've seen in the past that may have you going down this direction over here, which if you don't have the, if you have somebody who's got the specific knowledge of how the technology works and perhaps how the market views the technology or, or intends to view the technology, you may wind up choosing this mode, right? And, you know, I'm doing this V thing, you know, deliberately, the, the two paths are very different. This path may lead to a cliff, right? This path may lead to like, oops, that was a bad decision. We have to go and, you know, completely retool and pivot back to something we did before. Whereas if you have people that are super knowledgeable about what you're doing, you probably will have much better sense of conversation and a better input on decisions, right? Now that flips a bit, by the way, when you get later stage, right? When you get later stage, you actually now want to have people who have a good enough understanding of the technology, but can bridge you to that future state because the future state investors are generally gonna wind up having even less technical understanding of what you truly do. And then it really just becomes about, I'm going to then fit this technical area that you fit into and to whatever investment thesis these future people wind up having. So it's an interesting dynamic that usually changes around about the Series C sort of period of time, right? Where you want to invest people who can take you to that next level. I see. Yeah. So early stage, really focus on people with domain expertise and mm -hmm. later stage, we can generalize a little bit. Yeah. And James, the other thing that I would offer, just you know, as long as we're giving out advice, and I've seen this happen a couple times in my career, you know, let's say you get a board, you're going to have situations where what I just described is going to be hard, right? Because you're going to have three term sheets, and you know, they're going to be really compelling, and none of the guys that are giving you the term sheet are probably going to be as deep as you want them to be. The way to bridge that, though, is then to be insistent in the term sheet that you can bring on an independent board member right? With that deep knowledge, right? So when you have that, now you have like two prongs where you can basically go and have, you know, a funding source or a board member who has perhaps more financial knowledge. And then somebody who has perhaps much deeper knowledge about what you specifically do. Mm -hmm. And that's a way that you can bridge that if, if that becomes a situation you have to deal with. I see. So like just sort of balance out these different influences that yeah. make your board. Yeah. Yeah, it makes board conversations so much more effective, frankly, yeah. because like you can then actually like play both sides of it and really wind up with a much better outcome. Yeah, I heard in general like these people who sit in in uh, the startup board cap table, you know, they could stick with you like even longer than your marriage. So yeah, like that, <laughs> it depends on the marriage, but yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, it's like a fun and go, but the idea is that you want to choose those board seat very, very, very carefully. Very, yeah, once somebody's on a board. 
it's hard to get them off few times are people like, Oh yeah, I don't like being on the board anymore. It's, you know, like people like to have knowledge and insight and, and be there and it's hard to get them off generally. So you're right. Yeah. Stepping back into your career path. Um, yeah. In 2012, you joined the enterprise pioneers firm called ISD, where you serve mm-hmm. as CFO, CEO, and COO. Yeah. You led efforts to turn the firm into a vertically focused AI application developer and build the financial services and healthcare system. Yeah. Ultimately, resulted in the company's successful sale to the Symphony AI Group. What have been some of the big learning curves as you transitioned through these various C-level roles at ISD? Yeah. So IASD was a huge learning experience on a number of different levels, right? So prior to IASD, pretty much the entirety of my career was selling either communication services or enterprise software packaged up as software as a service, right? So that's basically what I was doing. IASD, however, was essentially a machine learning and AI platform, right? That people could do all kinds of interesting things on, build amazing applications. It was a combination of unsupervised and supervised machine learning. So think about you don't necessarily need to know what you're looking for. The machine will help you identify what it is, and then it will also identify you know, how to really tightly predict what it'll do down the road, right? So lots of great things that it could do. Learning curves here were a couple full, right? So I pretty much had to go and figure out machine learning from scratch, right? So I had no real background in it. You know, the interesting thing is over time, you know, what I began to realize is a lot of the machine learning things that were being discussed were just kind of like slightly more advanced things than I had already done. So it was kind of, oh, okay, I got it. This is how it works, right? So that was one. Number two, the variety of different techniques that were being used were something that you had to wrap your head around because certain techniques had certain efficacies and others had different efficacies and you had to figure out, well, okay, well, in what circumstance would this be useful and all of that sort of thing, right? That was a big aspect of it. The next piece of it was the go-to-market model. It's interesting that today we talk about it from, hey, it's AI and machine learning. But back in 2012, nobody said AI, right? People couldn't even spell AI back then. It was all big data analytics, right? And so, you know, it was trying to figure out, well, what are we really in, like, all of that. So, you know, the interesting thing is big data analytics had a big problem at the time, too, right? And that is that, like, everybody talked about big data, but nobody could get at it right? It wasn't all that accessible. The people that could get at it were like super limited. And like, there's a lot of other problems on that. So understanding just, okay, what's the dynamic of where our customers source data even lives, right? Was a key thing we had because in the early days, what we did is we ran around and talked about how great our technology was, right? And people would be like, yeah, it's freaking awesome. That's a really cool technology. We can't use it. But it's a great technology, right? And so as we peeled back the layer and figure out, well, why can't you use it? We discovered that getting access to the data was a real problem, right? So that was the early learning curve of realizing, okay, that's the market dynamic we have to deal with. In the early days, we were a generalist model. We tried to sell everything to everybody. And we used to joke that our sales pitch was like, what would you like to figure out today, right? Which, by the way, I don't recommend anybody ever does, right? It's super hard to build a repeatable sales model when everything is, is from scratch, So over time, what we realized is like, okay, there's certain people who are willing to pay more and certain people who are not. Let's go focus on that first group. Then what we also realized was there are certain solutions where we're just going to be that much more effective. So think move the needle a whole lot more than, you know, perhaps in other circumstances. So let's just focus on that. And so we built out this kind of interesting matrix, strategic matrix, we called it to figure out, you know, what sorts of solutions should we be going after and what sorts of markets should we be going after, right? And that's where the light bulb really went off on a lot of levels, right? Because then we realized, okay, 
if we're only going after this type of use case in this type of industry, we know exactly the data to ask for now. So it becomes a lot easier because you just go to the IT group with, okay, we'll just give us this stuff here, right? So that made life go a lot easier. And then, you, you know, basically going off and figuring out how to create a repeatable sales thing was one of the biggest learning dynamics. The other side of it too, what for me personally that was happening at this point in time is that, you know, we had had a bunch of transition, you know, we'd had sales leaders come and sales leaders go, right? We had made this choice that I was a big part of, right? So part of the DFO role in this case was to be kind of a strategic advisor that would kind of help identify economically, let's go this way, not that way. And so we got to a place where board was like, hey, look, why don't you lean in and let's not hire a new sales leader at this point yet. Let's go off and you know, wait for these trends to materialize a little bit better. They pointed at me because I'm good at process. I'm good at analyzing stuff and I can get up in front of people and say things. So they said, why don't you just go run it for a while and see how the sales operation goes. And so, you know, the interesting epiphany was transitioning out of the CFO role into kind of a CRO, COO sort of role was a lot of like, let's just say new ground, right? Mm -hmm. Although similar in many regards, right? Because, you know, I was very strong partners with the CEO and I kind of understood what was going on. But like when you truly put on the hat, you begin to realize that the motives that you have, what gets you up in the morning, what drives you, what you worry about change, right? Because like on the CFO role, yeah, you're very worried about like what happens on the sales side, but like your job is to make sure things don't spin out of control, that, you know, your reporting is good, that, you know, you're in compliance on stuff and the list of those sorts of things goes on. You put the CRO hat on and suddenly you're like, I don't care about any, I care, but I don't care about any of that stuff, right? Really, what I want to do is I want to get the pipe as fat as possible, maximize the number of opportunities that I can close get my sales reps, you know, as much as they can get paid, right? Because they, if they're successful, the company's successful. And so it's all these interesting dynamics that really come into it. And so when we talk about learning curve, you know, although I'd been a salesperson in the past, and I'd certainly been in a lot of sales processes in the past, that was one of the big learning curves of like how to actually think without going back to the old mode of like, well, let's, you know, let's get, try and control this sort of stuff. It really became art of the possible at the end of the day, right? Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, as a CFO, you have a defensive mindset versus when you just yeah. like a CEO, CRO, you're more like offensive. I think offensive is, yeah, I think, you know, offensive is a fine way to look at it. I didn't look at the CFO thing as being defensive so much. What I looked at it was, look, I felt myself to be kind of an enabler. I would, you know, I would try never to say no, by the way. There's a lot of CFOs out there that like they get up in the morning and they're like, how shall I say no today, right? And I never really came at it from that perspective. But it really was a little bit more on like, well, how can I help the people who need to make these decisions make the right decisions? How do I pump the information at them? How do I help them frame you know, the decisions they need to make so that they can hopefully get themselves to a place where they're like, oh yeah, that's kind of stupid. I shouldn't do that, right? Um, so yeah, maybe that's defensive, but it also I kind of felt as like, look, I was trying to be that business enabler. But you're right on the CRO front, it was basically like, okay, you know, I got to go off and you know, mine my customers and figure out how to drive stuff. And, you know, sometimes prudence wasn't the first thing that you thought of, right? Yeah. And just one note on that sales pipeline, sales operation. Mm -hmm. This definitely like varies across company, but how do you set up like incentives for mm. like sales efficiency? How do you like even compensation, for instance, like how do you yeah. make that your sales rep, your account executive play yeah. the best game? Well, this could be a whole other podcast right here, but so I'd say very, it's extremely specific to the actual business model itself, 
right? So in an enterprise selling sort of model, what you need to do is figure out, well, let's take a step back. The simplest, the high level way of thinking about this is figure out what your valuation drivers are. Is it going to be recurring revenue? Is it total revenue? Is it you know usage-based revenue? Whatever, right? Go figure out what matters to your investors today and in the future, right? And that becomes the central unifying effect that then should percolate into the rest of the organization. When you have that, then you can figure out, okay, so should I incent my salespeople on bringing new logos on board, right? And those sorts of sales models are great if you have a big land and expand sort of operation, right? So think, you know, I'm going to put a lot of money up front to get new logos because I feel really good that I can sell them a lot of stuff over time, right? The other side of it too is, do I have a distinct sales or customer success group, right? Because if I have a customer success group, right, then that model I just described works really well. If I have a unified sales and customer success sort of structure, then what I want to do is I want to figure out, well, how am I going to be successful over time? Most of these sorts of recurring models are you grow the customer's revenue base over time. So in those instances, maybe I don't put such a large incentive for the upfront. I put incentives for building a strong relationship, which then grows over time and that sort of stuff. And you see this with a lot of cloud providers today where they don't pay their sales reps necessarily on you know, net new deals, yeah, they'll get paid something, but they pay them on the amount of compute they use or the amount of, you know, whatever widget they're charging for that they use. Because over time, what they want to do is they want to incent people to take the customer from this point and expand them out, right? And so really at the end of the day, the simplest way that I could answer that question for you, James, is like, it's a study in organizational behavior. And how do I align the incentives that my sales and customer success and service and whatever people have with what makes me successful as a firm in the eyes of the investors and other people who care, right? Thanks a lot, Gary. Thanks for providing that yeah. nuanced perspective on that hard question. You spent about seven years at Ayashdi, and then you mm-hmm. joined Clara Analytics as its president and CEO. How did you navigate the journey of being a first-time CEO? Yeah, so the benefit that I had, so I had a really strong partner in my CEO at Ayashdi, right? So you know, I got to see a lot of the things that he was going through and the things that he was doing. And he would bring me into a lot of discussions where, you know, we talk about stuff, right? So I got an early taste for like what it meant to actually be CEO. So that was useful. The thing that nobody tells you, well, here's the thing, everybody tells you, and I will tell all your viewers now that like CEO is probably the loneliest job out there. Like you don't realize that until you actually are, because then you realize oh crap, it's me, right? There's nobody I can go to and say, ah, this guy didn't do his job or whatever else. Like, nope, it's all you. There's nothing else, right? And like, you have to make these decisions sometimes with a really limited amount of information, right? So the way that I navigated that in the early stages is kind of the way I've tried to navigate my entire career, which is go find awesome people and surround yourself with people who kind of know what the heck they're doing, right? And so number one, that's a super important piece of it, right? So surround yourself with great people, And in the process, you wind up being greater, right? Which is awesome. And your company winds up being in a better place. Now, I kind of have this anti-hierarchical sort of view, right? I don't really believe that you should have this, you know, pecking order and like all this sort of stuff. I kind of want e-staffs, members of my e-staff to have an opinion and to be pretty resolute about pushing their opinions. I want to know if they think I'm making a stupid mistake or like if I'm saying, hey, let's go left. And they're like, 
there's a cliff over there. We don't want to go left. That's dumb, right? So I want to have these sorts of discussions. Now, at some point here, you basically have to say, okay, that's enough. I know we don't all agree, but we're still going left, right? And we'll navigate around the cliff. So you have to kind of get to a place where you're comfortable with doing that. But the first and foremost thing is always surround yourself with awesome people and good things wind up happening. You know, and then the second thing that I would say is, look, you know, your instincts really matter, right? If you've gotten yourself to a leadership sort of position, you probably got there for a reason. It's unlikely that they just said, hey, let's go pick that guy over there, right? And so usually what that means is that when your gut's telling you something, you probably need to look hard at it and move on that. Get as much research or data or whatever you need to get comfortable with what you need to do, but your gut's worth something, right? And so, you know, that's another thing where over time I learned to kind of trust the gut a little bit more. And I think it has great outcomes, right? And so, you know, so that's how I navigated the first thing is surround yourself with awesome people and, you know, do what you can to make the decisions right. But importantly, it's listen to your gut and, you know, hopefully your intuitions are good enough to make it work. I see. Surround yourself with great people and uh, mm -hmm. your intuition, trust in your gut. Yeah. Under your leadership, Clara experienced significant growth while transforming property and casualty insurance through the use of AI and ML. What was your proudest accomplishment at Clara? Well, I mean, so candidly, it probably goes back to what I said earlier. So like building out the executive team that we had there, really one of the finest groups that it had a long time. I'm blessed, by the way, that one of them has followed me to my new gig over here. But building a team of all-stars, probably the biggest thing that I, and generally those are the themes that like, if you ask me in my career, you know, you can look back at things, products that work well and not and all that sort of stuff. But the teams and the people are kind of what matter more than anything to me. So that's an important accomplishment. You know, we expanded the market, right? The original call there was like expand out of, you know, the first market that we were in, which was kind of a confining workers' compensation sort of market. So we expanded that out into new lines of business. We raised a Series B right as the world was falling apart when COVID kind of kicked in, right? So that was obviously a big accomplishment, mm -hmm. you know. And so, you know, frankly, for me, what I value and what I take the greatest pride in is a number of people around me, uh, you know, trusted me with both their careers as well as their capital to build something. And for me, that's success in any construct. Yeah, beautiful. That's a beautiful answer. Another quick note about your time at Clara. So while you were at Ajashi, you mentioned that, you know, this is back in 2012 and a lot of people doesn't even know what is AI, a lot of people, yeah. you know, big data. You were at Clara at the end of the 2020s and this is like the time where like a lot of people already know about machine learning and AI and I suppose conversation with investors and even enterprise customers about the use of AI and ML changed significantly. So I'm really curious if you can compare and contrast the go-to-market motion why you time the Clara versus why you were Yeah. So great question. So, you know, just to run you through, it's probably best to talk about it in maybe three phases, right? So phase number one with the early 2012 to probably 2015, 2016 sort of timeframe, you know, and that's back when, you know, we were evolving from big data analytics into machine learning and AI, right? That's probably, we probably first started using AI in 2014, 2015. And so, you know, that first phase was, let's just go and figure out what works, right? You know, and that was hard, right? I mean, we had successes, but it wasn't the easiest thing in the world too, for a variety of the things that I described earlier, right? Which you really had to kind of get to know both use cases and get people to understand what you did and a big political sale to get everybody lined up and saying, yeah, okay, fine. I'll get you the data. I'll put resources into it or whatever else. Now from the 2015 timeframe to, you know, maybe 2017, maybe 2018 sort of timeframe, you know, the concept of like, okay, it's a category, AI and machine learning, you know, that's something everybody wants and needs, right? You know, people started publishing on it left and right. And the demand, let's say that from customers started to show up, everybody wanted to know. Now, 
most of the demand at that time between us was kind of clueless. They'd read about AI, they'd read some magazine article or a blog post or whatever else. And they're like, yeah, I want that, right? And they'd come and they're like, do you do these things? And you're like, no, in fact, nobody does those things, right? You probably shouldn't be reading that stuff. So lots of demand, but it was kind of tire kicking sort of demand. And I think that's set up for the third phase, which is kind of the phase I described that IOSD transitioned into. And that was the vertically applied selling model, right? Where, okay, we know we have AI, it's all good. We know we can get benefits, it's all good. Here's the exact benefit you're going to get by this, right? And that made it a lot easier for people to say, okay, that's interesting. I could see that that's a benefit. I understand that I'm going to have to spend some money to do that, but like, look at all this stuff that I get down the road, right? So that's kind of the end state that I see the AI world walked into. And and keep in mind, it's very interesting because after we sold IONS, like I specifically sought out vertically applied AI companies as the next step, which is what was interesting about Claire, right? It was very vertically applied AI sort of solutions for the insurance industry, right? Because those are the things that wind up getting traction, right? It's really hard to sell a generalist sort of stuff, right? And that trend's going to continue. So I think what you're seeing right now is there's a bunch of places where you can wind up building machine learning or AI or other things like that, but they're still all going to be focused on a particular efficacy or a particular thing, right? And so that's going to continue to evolve and you're going to continue to see winners show up in that space. Thanks for breaking it down to those different phases. How do you yeah. wide up at the vertically AI domain? So you've spent about two years at Clara and then you briefly spent a couple of months as an entrepreneur in residence at Redpoint Ventures, which is a top tier VC firm focused on early stage investing, especially for the enterprise world. So could you mind sort of going over, you know, your brief stint working with those folks? Yeah. So look, the experience working at Redpoint is over the top, right? So, you know, I've spent a lot of time going off and pitching to venture capital firms. It's kind of interesting to see how they think about stuff and how they do stuff, right? So that was a super interesting opportunity. It also gave me an opportunity to work with a partner over there who I really respect and like quite a bit and looking at infrastructure sort of things. So basically, the genesis of the idea was basically going out and looking at ways to solve the problems that a lot of the customers I had, as well as the companies that I worked in, you know, I was Declara, whatever. You know, we all had infrastructure sorts of problems, right? And we'll get into like Archeon and how that winds up working and why I'm here in a few minutes. But it gave me an opportunity to spend a lot of time working with really smart people, thinking about the way the world works today and what's missing from the world and you know how to start thinking about positioning something to solve those problems right and how big those problems could wind up being you know along the way got to participate in a lot of interesting opportunities met a bunch of entrepreneurs that you know redpoint had funded you know struck up some great relationships you know was blessed to be in an advisory sort of role to some of them to say like you know hey i've, I've been where you are and here's what i would do right and so that was all fun and all of that. But at the end of the day, you know, the real gist there was putting together two parts of the tech industry that I've always been associated with. One, the operating side, and one, the financing sort of side. So it was really great to see how all of those things come together. And, and candidly, gives you a very interesting perspective as mm -hmm. you think about growing future companies and raising things down the road and what it takes to be successful and all of that, right? I probably assume that given your time there, you probably saw like how these investors partners do due diligence and, you know, source yeah. and advocate for the potential deals within the firm, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's a central part of it. And by the way, I was doing diligence in a number of these sorts of things where, you know, you'd sit through 
pitches and things like that. And then, you know, it'd be like, Oh, okay. I know a person over here and I can ask about that. And I can think about that. Or like, you know, here's my view on what the market is, and how big it is, and, you know, the dynamics of it. So that was definitely a part of it as well. So, yeah. We'll talk about your experience icon in a minute, but I'm curious, have you ever considered going the investor role in the future? I mean, look, I don't know is the answer. So I think right now I really enjoy being an operator. It's the thing I kind of mentioned it earlier. I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, right? I kind of like having 15 things going on, you know, having some pressure, you know, actually kind of, I don't know, call me crazy. It's kind of good. Right. So I kind of like that sort of stuff. I could see at some point here that I'm like, okay, I feel like I've done this enough. So I don't think that day is upon us yet. But I could certainly see that as being an interesting thing down the road and certainly something that I would consider for sure. So since December 2021, you've been the CEO of Archeon Labs, which builds a cloud-native zero-code data mobility platform to address all data accessibility pain points and empower a variety of real-time use cases across the industry. What about the Archeon team and the product that attracted you to join the organization? Yeah. Okay. So look, a couple of things. As I described earlier, what I was really keenly interested in doing is trying to get into fixing the problems that everybody who has machine learning or AI or frankly, even you know business intelligence, you know, there's a bunch of problems that happen in that, right? And it goes back to what I said earlier about IOSBI, right? Access to the data itself mm-hmm. is a big challenge, right? And so for the entirety of last year, 2021, And I spent, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of time looking at a bunch of different models. So I had been working with the Archeon Group. It was formerly called Blitz, by the way. We changed the name back a couple months ago. So I've been working with the team to do a bunch of things, right? To figure out, you know, like, what's the market opportunity like here? Really? Does tech really work, right? You know, does it solve the problem properly? You know, all of that sort of stuff, right? And so the interesting epiphany that happened here over the course of that time was, well, first off, the product works, which as I'm sure a lot of your viewers will attest uh, as they've worked with you know technology companies in the past, sometimes the product doesn't work that well, or sometimes it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, or kind of does what it does, right? And so those are all things you kind of want to watch out for as you consider companies to work with. But Archeon's product actually worked, and not only did it work, it worked with like giant companies, right? So first off, Secondly, the thing that I look for in these sorts of things is kind of that validation that I just described, which is this was a company that didn't have a salesperson, full stop, right? They had a couple of engineers and, you know, some other people who were, you know, kind of businessy, but no real salesperson, right? And they had somehow managed to sell, you know, multi-million dollars worth of ARR to companies you know, right? That you may have an ATM card that belongs to, and, you know, you may be using one of the laptops sold by those companies, right? And so to me, it was astounding to see that here's a company that by rights shouldn't have any revenue, had a lot of revenue from companies that by rights, they should never have been able to sell to, and they did, right? So that told me, wow, this is really interesting. Yeah, doing diligence, talking to those customers, talking to the marketplace, talking to investors and other folks like that, you know, help me build confidence that like, not only is this an interesting technology, but it's time was pretty much perfect. And we can go into that a little bit more. I, I think you'll probably want to get into, but, but that was it, right? So great technology, market timing was super good and customer proof points were outstanding. Yeah, technology, market timing and customer testimonial. And you actually wrote a blog post called the dawn of the data mobility era, just yeah. like back in February. And yeah. Uh, be sure to include the blog post in your show notes so listeners can have a chance to review 
breakthrough catalytic vision that you laid out here. And towards yeah. that blog post, you wrote Archeon's vision is to catalyze the destruction of the data silo. Yeah. That's a very nice way of putting, you know, the ideas in yeah. words. Just a quick note before we talk about the product. So I believe, yeah. you know, Archeon was founded by uh, Rajkumar Sen back in 2018. And now you become a CEO and he's sort of transitioned yeah. into your role. How was your relationship between you and him, you know, after the transition? And Well, so look, I wasn't going to go through that, but that was actually another big part of it, right? Which is, do I get along with the founder? Can we work together? And, you know, can we feel confident that like through good times or bad, will we be able to work together and make it happen? Because it's a super critical sort of relationship, right? So over the course of my career, for the most part, I've been super lucky in the respect that I've been able to like fit from a culture and a personality perspective with the founders of the businesses that I'd be associated with. In fact, pretty much the entirety of, of my career, almost everybody who's been a founder of a company that I've worked in at a senior level is still a close personal friend, right? So that was something that was very important to me. So and Raj, by the way, I think is the sort of guy who understands that like he's an hands down an amazing technologist and understands the market explicitly and that sort of thing. I think where he and I worked and where we figured it out was that there has to be a division of labor, right? There are things that he's going to be good at that I'm just not going to be good at. And he doesn't want me in that. And then there are things that I'm going to be good at that he knows he's not particularly good at, right? And so like early on, we kind of established what each of our strengths were. And we also talked a little bit about like where the overlaps are, because by the way, it's the overlaps that kill you, right? Where you're like, hey, we're both good at this, right? And then you have to kind of decide, well, all right, well, who's going to do that, right? Or how are we going to deal with conflict in those areas and stuff like that, right? So he and I have done a nice job, I think, and we're very close at this point here. So I think we've done a nice job of fleshing that out. And I think it's worked out super well. I think, you know, look, as I said, he's got great technical skills. He's an amazing networker, right? Which is one of those things that I didn't realize until like a couple months ago, or like he's got a super deep network in the industry, which is like super helpful as well. I have a good network too, but it's in a different area. So like bringing those two together actually makes for a really awesome combination. So it's been great so far and looking forward to seeing how that continues to evolve. Thanks for sharing that perspective. So let's dissect some of the key capabilities that are baked into the Archeon product. So based on my research, the Archeon's Platform capabilities included convert, extract, and load, transformation, low-latency change data capture, enterprise-grade security, data validation, and live monitoring. Yeah. Would explaining how the platform architecture is designed at a high level? Yeah, so at a high level, here's what the company actually does, right? This is super important to understand. So the reason why it was difficult to build machine learning applications at IASDI or Clara or other things is because most of the data that you need to build those applications, they live in what are called enterprise data stores. So this is Oracle or SAP or you know MySQL or any of these other sorts of things. These are like hardcore enterprise databases. This is where the transactions live, right? Now, getting information out of those systems is super difficult, right? For a couple of reasons. Number one, if you're buying from Oracle, they're not really incented to give you the information, right? Lock-in benefits them, not you. Um, number two, even if it were super easy to get those things, you know, this MySQL is not hard to get in there, right? But you know, the IT people don't want you in their production systems, right? Because the more you hammer their production systems, the slower they get, right? So you can't have a network where you put your ATM card in the machine and wait a minute for it to validate you, right? That's not acceptable, right? So you can't really tap those systems super quickly. And then finally, even if you could tolerate having performance issues on those systems, 
the IT people don't want you in there because they don't want you messing with the security profile of those things, right? Because like that's how hacks happen, right? So mm-hmm. what the Archeon technology does is provide an alternative way of getting at those transactions in real time. Mm-hmm. And it does so by tapping into the logs that all of those production systems write. So every time there's an entry in the database, there's an entry in a log, right? And you do that because you need it for auditing purposes. You need to understand the machines that it's working on, if it's all good, all the stuff, right? So all the inputs that go into the database also wind up showing in a log at some point here. Now, but here's the challenge and here's what Archeon solves, right? The challenge is the log data is unstructured. It's a bunch of stuff that's just written into a log, right? And so you have to go off and figure out how to essentially rebuild the database off the logs, right? And that's a big challenge, right? So it's like, you know, you got to make sure you only send the data once, you don't send it multiple times or miss a bunch, right? You got to send it in a secure fashion. What happens if the log goes down? How do you rebuild it? You know, there's all these things that go into it that make it like kind of hard to do. And a lot of people think, oh, well, how hard could it be? But the truth is, it's quite hard. And most people don't do this sort of thing on their own, right? So that's what the company does. Now, the way the thing is architected is pretty straightforward, right? There's this concept of an extractor, a box. It understands the schema of the database that it's attached to. It basically listens for when data changes. As soon as it sees an entry posted in the log, depending on how you want to configure it, right? You can either grab the entry immediately or like every minute or every whatever, right? You you choose as as a user. It then takes the schema and it kind of normalizes it. There's a centerpiece of it that then deals with all the metadata components to it, because sometimes if you want to take things out of an Oracle system, it's going to go into a system that has a different, you know, schema, it has a bunch of different characteristics, table structures may be different, the whole list could be wrong, right? So you need something in the middle that says, ah, I get it, this thing over here, that's kind of how it maps. And then you need an applier sort of module, which basically goes off and writes into the target data system, right? So that's essentially what the technology is. The nuance of what Archeon does is it's built on very cloud native sort of architecture. So basically like it's highly distributed. So it could burst if you've got like a whole bunch of activity happening right now, it bursts and then it comes back together. It does a lot of that normalization stuff that I talked about earlier. So think like a MongoDB sort of database, you can stick it into a SQL database and that's really unusual, right? Nobody really does that. And it's really primarily designed to go and take things from like these legacy data store areas and move it into the cloud so people can do machine learning or AI or other sorts of stuff on it that they want to do. So they don't have to worry about where's that data going to come from and, you know, what's my application going to look like. Yeah. Thanks for capturing those features of the platform. Mm -hmm. I think even in your blog post, you did mention a little bit about sort of the technology and you know, this concept of like the change data capture, which is what the yeah. mentioned, be able to extract that lock and then communicate that yeah. with the cloud native solution. So you mentioned a little bit about like how Archeon connect with this different legacy databases as well as yeah. the cloud native solution. Based on my research on the website, Archeon has a growing library of more than 20 plus connectors and yeah. even more in the future in order to unlock native support for these different enterprise databases that are well sustained platform. How does yeah. you go about finding the right technology partners to collaborate with? Yeah. Okay. So for us, there's a couple of things, right? So for us, the partners are generally the target systems, the places where data goes to, right? And the reason for that is quite simple, right? Because all of them essentially wind up making 
more revenues or you know deeper customer relationships by having more and more data come into them, right? So they're all they're like, for example, Databricks is a partner, Snowflake's a partner, you know, single store is a partner, the list goes on. So every time that you unlock the ability for somebody to get into, let's say an Oracle or an SAP workload and replicate or move that data into a cloud system, the cloud utilization goes up. So their revenues go up. But at the same point here, also the customer experience for their customers goes up, right? And the reason for that is that, oh, and now I can do this real-time application to figure out whatever thing I need to figure out that's going to build some differentiation for me, right? So for us, partnering is really about like, how do we go and approach the cloud systems that we transfer into, right? And that process is relatively straightforward. I think there's really three things that go into it. You know, thing number one is who has an active book of business? Because like, it'd be great to integrate with a cloud company, but we're a commercial organization. And if that cloud company has no customers and doesn't have any prospect to have customers for six months, we're not going to have any revenue for six months either, right? So we got to go figure out where are the people that have customers. So that's the first component of it. The second component of it is how are our capabilities attuned with the partner's capabilities, right? So let's, you know, reflect for a second what our capabilities are. We can take real-time changes out of these databases and push them up into these cloud things. Okay. So that means those cloud things have to be out there talking about real-time databases or real-time use cases, right? Because if they're not, if they're like, hey, look, you could just do this to run the same dashboard that you've been running before, eh, it's probably not a good fit for us, right? Because their customers are going to be like, yeah, that's nice, but I don't really care. So if they're talking about real-time sorts of data use cases and building applications or other things on it, then they're obviously a good fit that way. Um, there's a tertiary component, I should say, that goes into our decision factors. And that is when you put the strategic hat on long-term, right? You may decide that there's an instance where like, hey, maybe they don't have a lot of customers today, but boy, this technology, we think that they're going to have a really big impact on the marketplace, or they're going to be some seminal technology that drives some future thing, right? And so on that regard, we may prioritize somebody who perhaps doesn't have a large customer base, but who we feel could be a very strong fit for us strategically at some point down the road. So those are kind of the three things that go into it. There's nuances below that, but at a high level, that's kind of how they all kind of fit together. Yeah, perfect. Thanks a lot for sharing that. Synergy in terms of business model, alignments in terms of tech capabilities, and then the X factor, sort of the yeah. investment. Yeah, X factor is the right way to put it. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot throughout the description of Archeon. Let's focus on some of the capabilities in real time use cases. Mm-hmm. Your customer use Archeon for different purposes, ranging from you know like real time analytics to hybrid and multi cloud infrastructure to yep. CLT, database replication, and data migration. Can you provide a few examples of some of these use cases? Yeah. So, okay. So keep in mind, we're infrastructure sorts of things. So basically the thing is we move things from one place to another, and then people do stuff with it on another. So the use cases, look, a couple things, right? So a number of our partners are these, what I would describe as modern data stack transactional databases. And so those are migrations of use cases. What they're saying to their customers is, hey, you're running all this stuff in Oracle, right? Uh, You know how you feel about that, right? I mean, you haven't really touched these applications for a long time. Move it into our new, you know, OLTP sort of system, right? And then begin building new and cool things on that same transactional database and eventually shut down Oracle. You know, that's basically one of the use cases. And so there, 
how that works is nobody just takes data out of Oracle on day one, moves it over into the new system on day one, and then shuts off Oracle on day two. What winds up happening is you run them in parallel for an extended period of time to make sure that you know the things that used to work in Oracle work in whatever new system you're implementing today, right? So that's an immediate use case, right? That's usually a process that takes anywhere from six months on the low end to multiple years on the high end. The way that that use case winds up working is usually an IT group has made a decision that like, okay, we're going to start moving a lot of things onto a modern data platform. So then you have, and nobody does everything at once, right? So you're going to say, all right, let's take the ATM network off of Oracle today and move it to, you know, whatever database down the road. That takes six months to a year. And then they'll say, okay, that was pretty good. Let's move the credit card network off of that, right? And so that'll take another six months to a year. And then they'll be like, okay, well, let's take the debit card network. And, you know, I'm being simplistic about the examples, but that's generally the way the migration use case kind of works. Mm-hmm. The replication use case, this is one that's near and dear to my heart because this is the one that my OSD and Clara and every other AI company out there needs to kind of get real-time data to do. Those things are like, I have this production database. I'm not going to change it. I'm good with Oracle or whatever the heck it is, right? What I want to do is I want to take those transactions out. I want to move them into, let's say, Databricks or something like that. And then I want to go off and build an application that tells me, you know, if a customer's on my website, you know, what sort of things should I be doing? So next best action sort of things. We have other customers who use our services for fraud detection, right? Fraud's particularly useful. Uh, is a particularly strong use case for us because, you know, in the old world, you know, you were limited to doing batch updates or replications out of these things. And those things could occur weekly, mm-hmm. you know, or monthly in some cases. And, you know, as you probably know, most fraudsters don't sit around and say, well, okay, well, you got me this week. Let me just like not do anything till next week. Right. They're like, oh, that didn't work. Let me do this other thing. Right. And so you want to be able to like get the data and identify the things that might indicate there's a problem very quickly, right? And so those are examples of use cases. You know, there's a variety of IoT use cases. There's, you know, like, for example, you know, this object is emitting certain things I need to now be thinking about or taking action on or whatever else. And so I want to be able to build a machine learning application over here that consumes that stuff and in real time can make decisions. And so I, mean, I can probably go on for hours on all of this sort of stuff, but it's all those sorts of things. It's anytime you have... Or, rapidly moving sorts of things that you can take advantage of and derive value out of, those are use cases that we can power. Yeah, I think um, there's more and more talks about, you know, bringing real-time uh, requirement into ML and analytics application. I think that I'm excited to see Archeon yeah. being a pioneer and, and part of that movement towards that reality. Mm-hmm. So let's take off your product head a little bit and put on your operational head. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any yeah. early startup. What valuable lessons have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about Archeon's mission? Yeah, so I think there's twofold, there's a multifold answer to that actually, right? So I kind of mentioned it earlier in the context of Clara, but like hire the best possible people that you can find, right? And, you know, really kind of figure out how to tell the story of what the company is doing so it makes sense to them, right? And by the way, it really depends right? You know, you want to hire engineers who kind of know the tech stack we've got and kind of know how to build the sort of things we get. You wouldn't go off and hire somebody who's like a 
you know, front end developer and, you know, ask them to do database sort of things. That, that's not the case. But other roles, right, you don't necessarily need to hire, you know, salespeople that have been selling database stuff forever, right? And so, like, you can mix and match depending on what the needs of the actual role are. But the core story here goes back to, you know, what's the vision that we're driving at? Why does that vision matter? We've talked a little bit about that here. You know, I get into further depth with people as I go through the hiring process. And then absolutely critically, James, is to make sure that they're culturally aligned with the company, right? Mm-hmm. And company culture, you know, everybody talks about it, but like there's a lot of people who talk about it and they still have lousy cultures and all that sort of stuff, right? Because like they speak about it, but they don't live it, right? And so the way that I try to do it is like, look, it's what you see is what you get. Right. I try to endeavor that every time I talk to somebody, I do 30, 60, 90 sorts of things after people are on board. And I always want to ask, okay, so like, you know, all the stuff you were told on the way in, you know, what's your evaluation of that? Right. Were we truthful with you? And I really take seriously when people are like, ah, nobody told me that it was this sort of thing or that sort of stuff is out there. I generally want to see people after 60, 90 days saying, nope, you guys told me exactly what, what I was walking into. And, you know, that's kind of what I see here, right? So that aspect of it, the cultural aspect of it and making sure people are aligned to it, super important. You know, and then it's basically like get them onboarded as quickly as possible, right? Help them. The more you help somebody get onboarded in the first couple of weeks, the more successful they're going to wind up being in the first couple of months, right? The longer you wait to get them onboarded, the harder you make it or the more distracted you are as they're coming up to speed, the harder it is for them to be effective and drive value for the company. And I genuinely think that that winds up being a really big decisive factor as well. For sure. And to that part about finding someone who's culturally fit, I think that's actually one point that I would love to dig a bit more on, like, you know, in terms of building a high performance team and everyone's alike around the culture, it can be hard for an early stage startup to write out all these values and things that everyone wanted to hear to like for you with Archeon right now, is there any like specific cultural pillars that sort of... Yeah. Awesome question. So look, funny, this is on my board slide, right? My last board slide. But um, so we're in the process of building that out and publishing that sort of stuff. But here's the general gist of where it is likely to fall, largely because it's a formula that I've used a long time. So, you know, I have this five, six point sort of way that I view the world and leadership. And I look for this in everybody that I bring on board. So critically for me, by the way, like the first line, so like all the people who are going to be the people that run the various groups, say sales, say marketing, say whatever else, that's for me, the critical place where you have to start and make sure there's, you know, a real bond and good cultural alignment, because if there is, then they will go and do the same thing for their teams. Right. And then before you know it, you'll wind up having an organization that kind of embodies the cultural sorts of things. So here's kind of the philosophy that I've developed over the number of years, right? So first off, I try super hard to make sure that I'm not an asshole and that other people that I bring on board are not either, right? And so, you know, that's one where sometimes it's hard to sniff out, but that's one where you can pick it up on referencing and, you know, and and talking to people who have worked with the various people over time, right? So that's super important. As I mentioned, I encourage everybody, like, you know, even if you're in pain today and you need to hire somebody immediately, don't just pick the first person that comes along, pick the best possible person, even if it takes a little longer, right? Because it's going to be a better outcome for everybody involved. If you pick somebody who's, uh, you know, I need an XYZ person, right? You just bring them on board and they miss a couple of these things. They'll either not be culturally right, in which case it'll be awkward, mm-hmm. or they may not, they may have a skills gap or other things like that. So it's like super important to bring on awesome people. I also look for people that have an opinion, 
right? I mean, I try to make sure they don't have egos, right? Or like massive egos or stuff like that. But like, I like somebody who comes in an interview and says, well, I, you know, I don't necessarily believe with that sort of stuff. And here's the sort of things I like. That's good. Why is that good? Because then I feel like I can bounce things off of them and, you know, get an honest answer from them. I know where they stand. All of those things are super important, right? I also find that like in interviews, clarity of thinking. So the ability to like say what you mean or ask in a way that I understand. Oh, I understand what you're asking of me is really important. Because one of the things that's super hard in startups is like getting down to like, what is it that we really need to do? What do I need you to do today? Right. Because there could be 10 things going on in my head. Right. But like there's just one or two things that I need you to do. So the clearer you can make the ask, you know, the more effective everyone's going to wind up being, the less ambiguous it's going to be, and the less people are going to be you know, weirded out by stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the sort of guy who likes to get into the weeds as needed, right? So I view myself as not being a micromanager, but if you need me to jump in a trench and kind of help dig it out, right? I feel like that's kind of the world that you need to be in because that shows that you're part of the crew. You're not aloof. You're not like one of these guys who said, well, I'll do it this way, but I wouldn't do it that way because I don't want to do it, right? So, and I feel like that's a really strong bonding opportunity and people need to know that, see that, right? Because they want to know, hey, I'm working with somebody who's a good person, right? And who's willing to roll up sleeves and get it done, right? Because that's what you need to do in startups. And the final thing, and all of this kind of augurs into that sort of thing is like, goes back to what I said earlier, be transparent and what you see is what you get, right? And if you do that, and sometimes it's painful, right? There's instances where people ask hard questions. You're like, oh, I don't really want to answer that right now. But if you set this tone and you answer the question, and it's not just like blurting out bad news, right? Because there's one thing to like being asked a hard question and then just answering it in a way that people are like, oh, that's soul crushing, right? But giving them the context, right? It may be a hard answer, right? But tell them why it's a hard answer or tell them why, like, look, you know, that's a difficult question to answer because of blah, 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 blah. But let me tell you how I'm thinking about it right now. Then people are like, okay, all right, I get it, right? I may not agree with it, but at least I understand what thinking went into it. And once you train people that that's what you're going to get, it becomes quite a bit easier for people to understand and appreciate the things that they're doing and the things that you're asking them to do. Yep. Thanks for capturing all those good advice. And yeah, I think definitely agree with your last point transparency and I think this this can be you know challenging in an uncertain environment within it but I think that's uh, by making transparency as part of the ethos that can help the company endure over the long term so Gary you had 20 plus years of experience in tech industry leadership and generate like nearly eight billion dollars in enterprise value reflecting on the arc of your career how would you describe the evolution of tech leadership and strategic business development over those yeah. decades selling into the enterprise <laughs> Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the a, a number of things have happened, right? So like, to be very candid, early tech leadership, you know, and this is probably through the 2000s sort of time period, was a lot of the, you know, fake it till you make it sort of thing, right? There's so many technologies out there. And by the way, there's still a lot of that sort of thing out there, right? There's a lot of people who say a lot of things and, you know, it's not necessarily what they actually do or can do or plan to do. Right. But there's a lot of that that happened in the past. But I think what's interesting right now is we are moving into a world where it's far more easy to understand whether or not something does the things they need it to do. We're able to separate marketing hype from product capability. Right. This whole concept of the ability to do it on a usage base. I love usage based billing. Right. Usage based billing gives you this concept of like, hey, if it's not useful, I'm not going to use it. Right. And people used to say this about software as a service or subscription stuff. 
right? Which is true, right? Because you can turn off the subscription, but a lot of times people would commit for a year or two or other things like that. But usage-based is so much more of a crucible, right? You really have to provide value, right? You have to provide something that people say, that was good and I'm willing to pay that again next month, right? And so what that forces is basically a big focus on the utility you provide and making sure that the customer experience is awesome. And with those things, I think you're talking about a world now where we move from like the BSE sort of, you know, hey, it's great and you should do this sort of world to like, not actually doesn't, but it says, right? And it's going to be even more awesome down the road, which is great for everybody, right? Yeah. I think to that point, I did come across a good amount of content about usage-based pricing from different firms. I think like SMO has some really good yep. articles about that. And I'm, I'm pretty sure they also like um, investors in the IRL account. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and Tomas at Redpoint has written about a bunch of this sort of stuff. He's got great blog posts on this front. So, you know, there's a bunch of other great people that have written some pretty awesome stuff around this sort of thing. So, yeah, usage-based billing for me is like the great equalizer, right? You know you're giving your customer value if they keep going, right? Perfect. Gary, at this part of our conversation, we want to move into the final closing segment. And we should ask you three rapid-fire questions and you can keep the answers for the listeners. Number one. Name three people in the broader tech community whose work you admire. Yeah, so look, I tend to like to do these things on a more personal basis versus like, oh, Steve Jobs was great at doing this or whatever else, right? So, you know, there's two people that have been like really influential to my career and who I respect and admire quite a bit. So the first, Gurjeet Singh, my old CEO at IASDI, aside from being like one of the smartest guys I know, he's a guy who likes to tackle hard problems who is incredibly innovative and thinking through how to make the solutions elegant for the people who are going to consume them. And then, you know, kind of taps into things that are really meaningful to the world, right? And so, you know, he moved out of IOSI, which was a machine learning platform sold to banks and government agencies and stuff like that. And now he's got robotic in vitro fertilization is his new company, right? So it's a very different product space, but he's approaching it from the same basic um, perspective and he's super fun to watch. He's definitely one for you guys to keep your eye on. You know, the second guy I talk about would be Satish Dharmaraj at Redpoint. He's a guy I've been working with for a long time. Satish is great from a number of different perspectives, right? So, number one, he was an awesome operator years ago and he's been one of the more successful venture capital people. And while those things are all great, that's not actually the reason why I would hold him out. I'd hold him out because I found him to be the sort of guy who actually cares about the businesses that he invests in, cares about the people in those businesses. I saw him work with a number of different companies and brought, you know, not just expertise and skill to help those things be successful, but also empathy and depth to it. And, and that's, by the way, that is not the commonest thing in the tech industry, right? And so going back on people really matter. That's a really important thing for me. So those are like two that would jump out on a personal level. And then, you know, from an integrity point, I'll do the high level one. I do love what Elon Musk did, you know, recently when called out in the Ukraine situation where man stepped up and ponied up satellite radios and communication stuff, right? So I have nothing but respect for a guy who does what he says, especially when called out. Awesome. Secondly, name one book that I could recommend for people to cultivate a leadership mindset. Ah, wow. So I don't have time to read all that much, which is like the big challenge here. And I generally don't get a lot out of leadership sorts of books. For me, what I wind up doing is I do a lot of reading of, you know, blog posts and other sorts of things from people who I find are, are super useful. So like, for example, James at NFX, um, I love network effects sort of things. I've studied them for years, love his work and the whole panoply of people that he has on guest blogs on that. 
you know, I also mentioned earlier Tomash at Redpoint. He's look, as an old CFO, right, who loves numbers, loves thinking about like how do I assess businesses and you know figure out if they're healthy or not or all stuff like that. His writing is like awesome for people to figure out. You know, do I have the right business model? Am I on the right track? Am I thinking about measuring these sorts of things properly? And so those are the sorts of things that I wind up looking at. And, you know, I could probably come up with a list of others, but those are the ones that, you know, jump to mind. Awesome. Yeah, be sure to include those blocks into the uh, yeah. Finally, uh, imagine that could send out a single message to all the first-time tech executives on LinkedIn. What could you say? Oh, wow. Well, you're in for an interesting ride. It'll be one of the most exciting ones of your life. But I think... Wow. There's a bunch of themes that bubble to the top here. You know, I think for first-time tech executives that get into it, I guess the one that I would say the most is like focus really, really matters, right? I've been fortunate to be a part of a lot of corporations that came from very early stages. And I would say this much, just because something can be done doesn't mean it should be done. And especially if you're a small company, right? Go figure out the thing that is going to make you the most successful and double down, click down, whatever you want to call it, get yourself successful on that, right? It's easier to do than trying to do 10 things properly. And that temptation is always there. I've never been into the, at an early stage technology company that didn't think, well, I could do this and I could do this other thing over here and I could do this other thing over here. That is a dangerous place to wind up going because now you have to experiment whether all of those directions are the right directions or not versus Let's go figure out if direction one works or not, right? And if it doesn't, whatever, let's move on to direction number two and let's figure out if that one winds up working, right? And then as you build up success, you can begin to build up the capabilities, but I would always err on the side of netting down to the thing that we do best today and then expanding on that over time. Yeah, really emphasize the part about focus and choosing a direction and commit to that. That's a fabulous way to end our conversation. So Gary, I really enjoyed chatting with you today, going over your early education and studying business, some of your early work at Verizon and NotPoy, your time working as CFO at various startup, Justin at IHD, you know, selling into the enterprise, you know, your move to Clara, become a first-time CEO, and your current journey with Archeon Labs, driving the data mobility movement, various interesting uh, perspective on the product, the uh, partnership, the hiring, the fundraising, and generally thoughts on the infrastructure for data analytics kind of going to move in the next upcoming years. And I appreciate some of your candid perspective on tech leadership, enterprise sales of fundraising, things like that. Given your background, I'm sure a lot of people who listen to our conversation can benefit tremendously from some of those wisdom. And be sure to include everything we discussed in the show notes. So yeah, listeners have a chance to take a look, follow up, and explore some of the you know, exciting work that I can be putting out for the rest of the year. Uh, so yeah, Gary, appreciate your time this morning. You have a great rest of your day. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for your time as well, James. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, uh, you have a great day as well. Okay. Well... That's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.